One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We've got another slightly different lineup for you today because we're doing something boaty. I'm joined by Chris because who better to talk about boaty stuff than our resident kind of German Navy, German princess, all-round metal boat correspondent. Um, Chris Sams is in the house, but Chris, we're, we're not doing metal boats. So why are you here? Hi, Zach. Um, yeah, that's, I'm, I found this quite in, quite an interesting subject. Uh, I did one with Charlie a little while ago about, and we were talking about the Third Anglo Dutch War, and I've started to get into wooden ships as well as a sort of general good. thing. And this is good. We are corrupting you. Yeah, maybe um, not enough German ships, but um, yeah, they found this really interesting. This is something I didn't really know that much about, and uh, yeah, it's a really fascinating story. Fascinating story. So, who's our guest today, and what are we talking about? Okay, um, so today we have um, Alan Smith, who is a former journalist who now spends all of his his free time dedicated to the noble art of naval history. Uh, he guides on HMS Victory. He's a volunteer at the Museum of Royal Navy in Portsmouth and is a research researcher for the Diving Deep Invincible 1744 project. He's here today to discuss the subject of his new book, Balshan's Victory, the loss and rediscovery of an admiral and his ship. Welcome, Alan. It's great to see you. How are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm good, apart from the horrible cold, but yeah, I'm ready for it. Shall we start? Do you know what? I'm, I'm going to go off piste, actually. Um, we talk about victory, and immediately everybody thinks of current victory, if you will, because HMS Victory in Portsmouth Dry Dock is, of course, a still a commissioned vessel in the Royal Navy. But we're not talking about that victory if i'm right in saying so so which victory are we talking about here because there are a few that have this name yeah um we, we're talking about the fifth victory would you believe um it was the predecessor of nelson's victory um by about 30 years um she was launched in 1737 
And um, actually, it, it was a, a peculiar uh, time of rebuilding ships then. So although she was launched in 1737, in fact, her origins go back way, way back to um, the 1685 um, when she was launched as the, the Royal James. Um, and that was the brother of Charles II. So um, it started like then. And, you know, it, at that period, they used to take ships apart and rebuild them. Um, and, yeah, she, she was a 110-gun ship, beautiful by all accounts. She was described as the finest, largest navy in the Royal Navy. And um, she had the largest guns available, big 42-pound guns, and a complete bespoke um, set of bronze guns, which, of course, shortly after that, they're superseded by iron guns and smaller guns. But, yeah, she actually had a, an up-and-down life, the same as Balshin. Um, not only having various collisions, she was rebuilt in, in the 1690s, 1694, 1695. And in 1721, she actually caught fire um, when they were breaming her, cleaning her bottom and uh, burnt almost down to the waterline. So they piled her up as a pile of, of, of um, timbers in Portsmouth Dockyard until 1726 when the Admiralty decided to rebuild her. So although she was a new, quite new ship, she had a lot of history behind her. She, they also had a bit of a design quirk when they rebuilt it, didn't they? Because um, the surveyor of the Navy and the master shipwright had a bit of a falling out about how they wanted her built. And um, the shipwright disobeyed what he was told to and put in all these extra bits, which could prove detrimental later. Yeah, I mean, most ships then, you know, they, they had the quarter deck, they had the poop deck, a poop royal. Um, and for some reason, on, on the, the, the latest victory, um, they put a poop, another a deck above the poop royal. So she had four galleries at the back of the ship there, extraordinary high. And um, she was also quite short relative to the number of guns she had on her. So she tended to wallow, she's crank, which meant she had to have more and more ballast put down in, in, in the hold, which, which actually made her so close to the waterline that in the slightest swell, she couldn't even open her, her, her guns on, on the leeward side. So yeah, she was very much over, over height, but also there are questions about her timbers because having been stowed on a pile of, still on, on the Admiralty books as, as HMS Victory, actually she was a pile of, of, of logs in, in, the, in the dockyard. So questions rose about, well, how many of those were suitable? Were they rotten? So there's... Let's rewind then and talk about um, the the big protagonist here, Balk Balkan, Balkan, yeah, I call him Balkan. Some people call him okay. Balkan. But... So he's born just nine years after the Restoration, and ends up making his way into Charles II's Navy Royal, doesn't he? So talk us through the you yeah. know his early life, his experiences, and his route into the Navy. Yeah, I mean, he, he was born in February 1669 in in Godalming in Surrey. Um, but it was certainly volatile times, um, not only political and religious because of the Restoration, um, but also we'd come through a whole series of three Anglo-Dutch wars while he was in his youth. And um, in fact, he, he served under six different uh, monarchs. So it just shows after over 60 years, six different monarchs. And of course, when he joined the Navy in 1685, age 15, very closely after that was, was the Glorious Revolution. William and Mary came in uh, and then the nine, nine Years' War started. So 
from a very early age, as soon as, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old, and they're at war, and there's all things going on around him. So um, he, he, his first commission, actually, was in, in, the, in the Caribbean, the West Indies. And, of course, at the time, the death rate in the West Indies for officers and crew was tremendous with yellow fever, malaria, and whatever. So, in fact, he was a survivor. And it meant that on the, the first few years, in the whole of the 1690s is the West Indies. And um, the death rate amongst senior people meant that he rose through the ranks quite a lot. Um, his, his first commission was a, a young lieutenant on a, um, it was a frigate, uh, HMS Dragon. And we know from the probate records that during his time on the ship, two, at least two senior lieutenants died of yellow fever. So he was being promoted all the time with actually probably working quite hard, but nevertheless, as a survivor, that's that sort of what happened. Um, he actually got his first commission uh, there under um, Admiral Sir John Neville, because he transferred from the Dragon to the Admiral flagship. And uh, he obviously performed very well because um, it was in about 1697 that they captured a French ship, the Virgin, and he was got his, foot, his first command. Um, and it wasn't through... Um, his friends or whatever it was the admiral promoted him to that so he must have been doing fairly well as a young officer we um about there's a like we said this is a bit of a gray area for people with popular history with the naval we've had the th three anglo-dutch wars next people send, tend to think of the royal navy and sort of the napoleonic period and about the sort of grandstanding and sweeping everyone out of the way what was the royal navy like in this period as he was uh, starting to take his first steps on the command ladder? Well, the, uh, the United Provinces or the Dutch and, and the English certainly were the two powerhouses in terms of maritime, maritime powers. Um, but they'd been, you know, between 1652 and 1674, there were three Anglo-Dutch wars. So while they were tearing each other's navies apart, the French suddenly woke up to the fact that they had no empire across the world there. And under Louis XIV, the, the, the great Sun King, he started to rebuild the navy. So although um, it was certainly not uh, Nelson's powerhouse, it was certainly up there, but it was then um, in, a, in a position where um, it, it needed a, a quick catch up. The French were building new uh, arsenals right across France at Brest, at Nantes, uh, uh, and so uh, Rochefort so really it was a question of, of rebuilding while the, the next war, the, the Nine Years War came up but I have to say um, by about 1707 the War of Spanish Succession the Royal Navy had um, basically crawled itself back to be mistress of the seas because neither the French nor the Spanish would actually come out to have a major battle They'd rather send out privateers to disrupt merchant ships. So it's true to say that she was a leading power by 1707, 1708, by, certainly by the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. The trouble is, as we go through his career, uh, Belgium's career and the ship's career, um, between 1713 and 1739, uh, the next war that started, during that, those years of peace, it was a pacifist government under Robert Walpole um, and they stopped any spending on, 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 on the Navy or, or the armed forces. So when war started in 1739, although we still technically had a big Navy, there's only 35 ships that fit for service. 
So it, it had to rebuild itself again then. Um, but I think that one of the fundamentals of the book is that the catastrophe that led to this HMS victory going down and Belgium going down was a massive catalyst that, that the Admiralty Board was cleared out within two months. Lord Anson came on as captain at the time. And that, that was, was really the, the catalyst for the massive changes that actually led to the powerhouse of Nelson's Navy. There's so much there that I want to dive into. And I think we'll come back to what happens to this victory um, a little bit later. But I, I want to just kind of dwell on his um, kind of combat record and his combat experience for a second, if we can, because his first uh, taster of full scale inverted commas battle comes in 1702. Tell us about that and his, his role within that and, you know, the impact of that on him and his experiences. Yeah, it, it was the start of the war of the Spanish succession. And um, although there'd been various uh, engagements, the first major one was actually under quite a big fleet under Admiral Sir George Rook. Um, and he had a, quite a big uh, fleet squadron that w- went down to try and capture Cadiz, but failed. Um, and in that, that squadron, um, Belgium was there on a 28-gun um, HMS Vulcan, a fire ship, and on their way back, they met this, this huge uh, convoy of, of transport ships and French escort ships uh, entering the, the, the Bay of Vigo. And uh, basically, it, it, it was a complete wipeout of the whole fleet. Um, we captured six of the French uh, warships, escort ships, and uh, burnt or destroyed six others, and the whole of 19 Spanish ships were captured at the same time. So it was a, a spontaneous engagement, as it were. And in fact, um, despite having quite a small ship on Vulcan, uh, the records show that he actually captured a French ship called the Modere, 56-gun Modere, um, which then he, um, he took over uh, as HMS Moderate. So that was his a, a, a command there that he'd taken over in 1703. That was his first major battle. A few years later, though, he, he become he he's on the receiving end of the opposite sort of end of that with the Battle of the Lizard, um, where he's part of the escort. What, what goes what happens there, and what goes wrong for him? Yeah. Bless him. Uh, he he just come back from um, two commissions on the coast of Guinea, um, and if you thought the West Indies was a bad place to to get ill, um, the coast of Guinea was pretty bad. So he just come back from that. And he was ordered to um, join a five-ship squadron under uh, Commodore Edwards to uh, escort a a fleet of merchant ships. Um, uh, And so there's only five ships there, and they're going past Lizard off Cornwall. And out of the blue, two huge squadrons under Admiral Duguay-Trois and uh, De Forbin. And there were two... Although they, they were in the French Navy, they were, they were, they were privateers because they're actually sponsored um, because, as I say, the French would not come out in full fleet battle. And so they arrived on the scene with 12 mighty warships. And, uh, of course, Belgian ship was, was all of them were, were overtaken. Only one escaped of those five ships. Um, one blew up and uh, Belgian's ship was ca- captured, HMS Chester. And... It, it, it's a, it was a one-sided, and we, we come to meet you guys through, through uh, again after that. Um, but 
if I may, can I, there's a little piece which is, uh, it's the court martial. Because when you lose your ship, you're, you're court martial. And there's a tiny little piece here which I've quoted from the court martial. It just describes what this guy was like. The Chester was in her proper station, was engaged until being boarded by three of ye enemy ships. And at last, they having entered many men and his own men driven off ye deck and the ship much disabled, Captain Balchin was seized on ye quarter deck and the enemy then got possession of his ship, and the court being satisfied that Balchin in all particulars discharged his duty on this occasion, the court did acquit Captain Balchin. You just imagine there on the quarterdeck, and the, the, the troops are firing over there, and he's, yeah, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, he, he was um, released on parole in 1708, and uh, he was then exchanged in 1709. Um, so they gave him an, another ship, and bless him, he goes out on this, this brand new ship, HMS Gloucester. And he is captured again. <laughs> he, 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 he bumps into Dugay Trouin and uh, completely outnumbered. And, and Dugay Trouin is on his flagship, a 74 gun ship against uh, poor old Gloucester. And yeah, the story goes on. He, he gets court martialed again. But again, he, he is, um, I think they describe him as. Um, it is the opinion of your court that you said Captain Belcher and other officers and men did discharge their duties very well in this action against the unequal power of the enemy. So he got completely exonerated again. So he'd been through the mill by 1709. Yeah, he's, he's been somewhat unfortunate, but his personal bravery and um, is exonerates him. I guess there was literally nothing he could do to avoid those situations. No, I mean... As I say, because there weren't any fleet actions, it was that the Royal Navy was was um, they, they couldn't entice anybody out of Brest or or Nantes or Rochefort or Cadiz. Uh, so it's a question of just gu guiding, um, escorting convoy ships to keep the merchant going to, to, to the Americas, to India, to the Caribbean. <coughs> and of course, <coughs> the French would come out in small groups and and, and and attack. So it was it was unavoidable. By the same token. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Royal Navy was doing the same. So trying to intercept any um, traffic going between the Caribbean, the, the Americas, Canada, back into France again. So once um, he, he's back in service on this 54-gun frigate uh, in 1709, HMS Colchester, 
he's doing the same as Dugai Truan. He's up and down the channel and he, he captures at least four merchant and warships uh, and getting the prize money in for that, etc. And um, he had a whale at the time until the piece of Utrecht in 1713, because he'd also go down to the Mediterranean. And that's, again, where he proved himself. And he, he's, he's amassing prize money then, but no full battle at the time. That is up until about the, uh, the, the Battle of Cape Pizarro. Yeah, uh, after the Treaty of Utrecht, the, the, the Spanish decided that they, they, they shouldn't have signed that treaty. <laughs> and they decided to carry on recapturing stuff that they'd lost under the treaty. So in 1717, um, they, they captured um, Sardinia, and then they'd gone on to capture Sicily. Now, Britain wasn't at war with Spain at the time, um, but nevertheless, they, they were... Um, uh, allied to the, the emperor, the, the, the Austrians. So uh, a huge fleet was sent down um, under, you mentioned Bing. Uh, this was Admiral Sir George Bing. <clears throat> and um, he was sent down with a fleet of 22 ships to the Mediterranean um, with the intention of basically saber rattling. But as these happen sometimes, the saber rattling got a bit vicious. And um, they got down to Cape Pizarro on the southern coast of, of, of Sicily. Um, Belgium was on HMS Shrewsbury, an 80-gun ship, uh, which was the flagship of Admiral Sir, Char Sir Charles Cornwall. And they met this huge fleet of 27 uh, Spanish ships uh, just off the coast. And uh, without ordering a battle or anything, they just basically gave chase. And the Spanish fired at them. That meant, hey, we're having a fight here. So the Battle of Pizarro, no war was declared. There's no battle signal, but they engaged the fleet. And they, it was absolute mayhem. They captured 16 Spanish ships of the line and frigates and wow. captured both of the Spanish admirals. And um, it was a, yeah, an interesting engagement. And, and he, he again, uh, the, the records show that Belgium behaved with the greatest courage and intrepidity, whatever that means. It was intrepid anyway. <laughs> Yeah, it always seems to be the navy that pick these fights, start these fights. Yeah. With that kind of, I wonder if we can te tease this. Um, but uh, yeah, that that leads us on quite nicely to um, what kind of a picture of of the man do, do are we getting? Are, are there any records of what, apart from what we've said already, that sort of describe him and his command style or his personality? Well, there's lots of examples of of, of his character. There were at least two or three complaints made against him to the Admiralty um, that he was misusing somebody. But then you see his letters in, in defense of himself. He said, well, hang on. This guy was a bad guy. He kept on disobeying orders. That's why I had him flogged. Um, but on the <laughs> other hand, he's also very compassionate. Um, one of the Admiralty jobs that they gave him was to say, look, there's complaints down in Plymouth about um, the, the, the bakers, suppliers of, of bread to the fleet was not the size of proportion it should be and that they're being ripped off basically. So he goes down and he calls a whole lot of, of, of people up on deck of, of various ships and says, what are you, you complaints? I, I won't shout at you, but it's, what, what is the problem with this? And he says, we don't have a problem. We don't have a problem. Where the complaints come from? So he goes down to the baker and he says, 
I want to test 20 loaves of bread, please. And then he weighs them. And he says, no, there's nothing wrong with it. But it, it, so there's, there's a, a reality with, uh, about him. He, he was a very pragmatic guy. But I think the main thing that comes through, he's a family man. Um, after the Battle of Pizarro, um, he, 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 no, sorry, when he first came back from the Caribbean, um, he married Susanna, a priest in 1698, who was the, the daughter of a colonel. And they had six children. Uh, by that time, he was living in, in the um, uh, Covent Garden area. And that's where all his children were baptised, although only two survived him. Um, it was a rather tragic uh, picture. And um, so after the, the, the Battle of Pizarro, the various prize monies he'd got, he then moves into a very prestigious Cheney Walk in Chelsea a big four-story building there where he stayed most of his life. So he, he's, he's, he's going up the, the ranks and he's becoming a, a, a more important person. His daughter then goes on to marry Temple West, Captain Temple, who becomes Admiral Temple West. He also has a memorial in Westminster Abbey. Um, his eldest son, his, his, his surviving son, actually died the year after him in 1745 in Barbados. Uh, he's captain of, of, of a, a frigate called Pembroke. So, but yeah, he, he was a, a, a family man, but he never entered politics. And that period, you've got the, the likes of, of Admiral Wager, Admiral Norris, um, Vernon, and they're all MPs, all being fired. And, and, and so they, they got involved in politics, which is not a good thing at that time. There's a change of government, you're out. You know, you became the yeah. board, or you're, you're taken away from commission of, of, of running the Mediterranean fleet or whatever. So he didn't do that. He did as he's told. He's very, very loyal. And um, he, he, wherever he was told to go, he went. He did his stuff. So in 1744, he retires. But that's just the beginning of the story, isn't it? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. It's the beginning of the end. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it, the tragedy is he, he'd served for 58 years. And he retired in April and on, on a salary, of a pension of £600 a year, which is a substantial amount of money then. And in May, so retired in April, in May, he was knighted by George II. He was given the, 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 the title of governor of, of, of the Greenwich Naval Hospital, which again was worth £1,000 a year. Um, and a month later in June, June the 1st, in fact, the Admiralty, you know, they're on the phone saying, excuse me, can you come back? Um, and they made him um, Admiral of the White and, and gave him a huge fleet of 27 ships and said, go off and relieve this convoy out in, in, in the River Tagus. So um, he had a very, very short um, retirement. In fact, he never even got to Greenwich, um, such was the, the shortness of retirement. So... In a way, it, it, it is a culmination because he, he, he's 75 years old. 
And yet they still went to him rather than any other senior. There were plenty of senior officers around, but they dragged him out and he, he chose HMS Victory to be his flagship. And there were 17 British and six Dutch ships in this fleet. And the importance of it was that the, the, the Mediterranean fleet was desperate for provisions. They'd run out of sail, they'd run out of, of, of victuals, they'd run out of, of rope. And every time that the, the, the provisioning squadron went out, it was meant to be every six weeks, uh, they kept on being intercepted by the French. So it was long overdue, and they were desperate for this um, convoy. The French anticipated this, and they knew that the state of, of the Mediterranean. So when the, the huge um, victualing squadron set off, they were captured. They were they were they, they went into the River Tagus estuary in Lisbon, and the French then blockaded them in. They wouldn't let them out. So this was quite a desperate situation um, in in the period of the war where it was touch and go whether the Mediterranean fleet would survive or not. So Balchin was 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 put in charge of this 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 fleet, and he made his way down to to the River Tagus. As soon as he got off Lisbon, the French ran away in, <laughs> into um, into Cadiz because they were such a, a huge squadron. And so he picked up the convoy, took it down to Gibraltar and uh, mission accomplished, basically. He wanted to stay there and draw the French out of Brest or Cadiz. Uh, but unfortunately, the Dutch ships ran out of water. So he's forced to come back. Um, and it was on the 3rd and 4th of October, 1744, as he entered the, the, the English Channel, there's an almighty storm and um, of all the ships, they gradually came back over the next few days, completely bedraggled. They threw guns overboard because of, of the threat of the sink. Uh, their, their, their main yards have been taken off. The, the ships, they all returned, but they were in a critical state in both Plymouth, in Spithead, and, and in the Downs. But the only ship that didn't come back was, was um, the Victory. She'd gone down what was thought was on the Casquettes Reef in Alderney, because that's where they found uh, remnants, uh, gun carriages and masts and everything to prove that it was the victory. And not a single body was found. Um, and on that ship, not only was Admiral Sir John Balshan, but the captain um, Samuel Faulkner, who's a, a very senior captain, and 1,100 crew, including 50, over 50 young gentlemen who are from noble families who are specially uh, put on board to learn from this great master where they knew that there was going to be a victory anyway. So it was a devastating um, impact on, well, on the country. Yeah, the, so um, apart from the horrific loss of, loss of human life, how, how did it impact um, Britain? Because this is, this is something that's, I think I'll probably be, okay to say it's not something that's widely that known about now but at the time this is a massive tragedy yeah uh, it already been acknowledged that the victory was the the, the the pride of the royal navy it was the most prestigious ship there the shock of it going down because the admiralty knew that she was cranked that she was uh, she shouldn't have gone out in, in, in the winter. It's a summer ship. Um, but they didn't know about that. They just knew that this is mighty ship there. And Balchin was, was incredibly well known in the press. I mean, the press 
was very much pro-Navy, and they wanted to know what's, what was happening. So when this great admiral disappeared, and the, 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 the ship, and the, 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 the enormity of 1,100 crew. So in terms of Joe Public, the newspapers were full of it. Um, poems were written, songs were written. Um, there, there was uh, artwork done, there was etchings, there was paintings of the ship going down, outpourings of grief, especially somewhere like Portsmouth, when you know, most of the crew were from Portsmouth. So it was a devastating effect. On the other hand, that's the Joe Public reaction to it. From the Navy's point of view, Admiral Vernon and various other people, uh, Knowles, have been complaining about the state of shipbuilding and, and ship administration and uh, ship design. So in the official side of things, it was a catastrophe. Um, and it, it led, I mean, that was in, in October. By December the 22nd, the Navy board had been sacked. Um, Earl Winchelsea, the first sea lord, was dismissed, and they brought a, a, a new board in, which included uh, the Duke of Bedford and uh, the Earl of Sandwich and Anson. They were the three biggest reformers that actually tore up the copybook, decided to redo the design of ships, uh, naval administration, dockyard administration, which actually was the catalyst to then build, rebuilding the Navy um, uh, through from the 1747 right through to uh, Nelson's powerhouse, as I said before. So the ship goes down. The, the Admiral and his ship sort of slip into obscurity, or at least they did until 2008. What happens? Yeah, in, in 2008, the, it, everybody thought, because of the records um, of the time, that, that the ship had gone down in, in the Cascades Reef in Albany. In 2008, an American exploration company, salvage company, uh, Odyssey uh, Marine Exploration, discovered a wreck in the middle of the channel, 70 kilometres southeast of Plymouth uh, and 100 kilometres west of, of the Channel Islands. So it just debunked the whole idea that she'd hit the reef. She'd actually gone down, uh, which was actually demonstrates the, the, the problems with the ship itself. Um, and they, 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 they pulled up two guns, a 12-pound bronze gun and a 42-pound bronze gun. They retrieved it to identify, was this the wreck of, of victory? And that was confirmed that that's what it was. Um, so the two guns were then given to the National Museum of the Royal Navy to, to, to renovate and conserve and to put on public display. It, it basically, there, when it was discovered in, in 2008, 2009, there's been basically 10 years of political and legal wrangling about what to do with the ship. Um, on, on the one hand, they wanted to, to, to retrieve artifacts. They couldn't have brought the whole ship up. They could have brought a lot of artifacts up. So it wasn't a question of like a Mary Rose but it was something to get a whole lot of material up to, 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 to study and et cetera. On the other hand, there's a, a big maritime archeology span uh, argument that no, let us stay in peace. It, it, it's a war grave, if you like. Um, we've, got, we've got two guns up here. So this went on through judicial reviews, high court hearing, and eventually um, 
the MOD uh, said, no, let her lie where she is. The argument being that the argument could bring stuff up was because deep sea trawlers were going to disrupt the site. There'll be looting and all the rest of it. But the assurance from the MOD was that no, let her lie there 24 seven. We can monitor what's going to go on and uh, basically a whole lot of, um, uh, it is emotive because the, the descendant, the last descendant of Admiral Balchin was Richard Temple West. And he was arguing passionately to let the, let the ship and its, and its people rest in peace. Unfortunately, he died in 2018, 2019, uh, before I actually got to, met, to meet him. And I was so upset about that because I, I think I tried to br bring, bring back to life this, this great man. Yeah, there is a kind of grey area um, between when does archaeology um, mm. stop being grave robbing, and it's, it's especially difficult with marine archaeology with war, with ships that go down because, as you said, they are someone's tomb, and there's that kind of study of history outweighing respect. So it does become a bit problematic. Mm -hmm. um, but so, what does that um, what does that mean for the for the wreck now? Is it is it just going to, she will just be left in peace? Yeah, uh, just, was it last year? I think it was last year. Um, the, um, the Joint Services Subaqua Group from Plymouth, um, they went out there to in inspect, they got, you know, get special permission, and, and they, they sent me a whole lot of uh, underwater pictures of it, and it, it's, a, it's quite a moving site. When you, you've got the underwater pictures, you've got the divers in there, and there's these great guns, just literally one gun piled up over the other, and there's bits of timber there. And I've recently been involved in, in the dives on the, um, the wreck of HMS Invincible that went down in 1758, and that's just 3.2 nautical miles off, off Old Portsmouth. And so I'm familiar with what it looks like. But then having got this far with the book, just about to be published, and we get all these pictures of, Real time of the, the, this, 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 the wreck is just so, ah, oh, so emotive. And you think, ah, oh, Belchin's down there and all these people. And what, what a history. So when, when you go to Portsmouth now, the National Museum of the Royal Navy, there's that big 42-pound bronze gun sitting there on display. And people are amazed. Well, well I, I thought that's the victory. No, no, this is another victory. And whilst that is becoming more visible i just hope that that will also remind us not only of the ship but the man behind it so the purpose of my book was actually to to coincide with this gun there what is behind that gun what is the the, the, the history behind that gun and what about the people especially Balchin? which is a really nice point at which to plug your book vociferously if we may so remind everybody about the title and crucially where they can get it yeah, it's, it's published by Pen and Sword, um, and you can get the book from Pen and Sword. Um, I think it's under Amazon as well. It's in the U.S. Naval Institute uh, on their website. Um, I know that in my, my local Waterstones, they've, they've sold out their copies. <laughs> um, so it's, it's basically available on the website, WX Smith. It's on the website of, of, of Waterstones. And various deals of it. I know on the Pen and Sword, uh, on their own website, they, they're doing a deal on it, which is slightly cheaper than 
at this place. Folks, Balshan's Victory, go buy it. It's a fascinating read. Alan, it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.